I want to invite you to continue to worship with me uh, in the study of God's Word. You've got your Bible. Turn to that passage uh, that was just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, as you read through in this uh, text, uh, we are continuing uh, our study of uh, divisions that are happening in the church at Corinth. Uh, it, it really is a consistent theme in the New Testament that one of the uh, essential uh, ways that God's people reflect the character of God is in their unity with one another. Over and over and over again, the scriptures are, are concerned with the unity of the people of God. The entire book of Ephesians <clears throat> is about the unity of a church that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and because of their different kind of ethnic and social background, their different religious backgrounds, they are tempted to have a, a divided church, and, and the book of Ephesians is written to kind of plead with them to live in unity with one another. Later on in the book of Corinthians that we're studying right now, Paul is going to tell the church that when they gather together to take the Lord's Supper, uh, if they take it in a divisive way, it's not even really the Lord's Supper. When you come together to do Christian-y things, if you do them in a way that's divisive, don't claim Christ. He's got strong words. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for his followers that they would be one as he and his Father are one. And Jesus would tell his disciples that the world would know, they would be able to identify Jesus' disciples in the way that they have love for one another, the, the way they move towards one another and care for one another and serve one another. Jesus has to, and the scriptures have to remind us over and over and over again of the importance of unity because the problem of division is such a persistent reality for the New Testament church. The New Testament church, starting from the very beginning and leading all the way up to the present time, has always wrestled with this problem of division, disunity, discord. And to make matters worse, the problem is so often not that Christians fail to, not just so often, it's almost, it's basically always not that Christians fail to unify the church. I want to say that again. The problem is not that we fail to unify the church. The problem is that we continue to divide a unified church. And it's a really important distinction that we need to hold on to. Here's what I mean. If you look, at, if you look back, and we're not going to read through Ephesians. We're preaching Corinthians right now. But if you look back at Ephesians, his exhortation to the Ephesian believers is not be unified with one another. His actual ex exhortation is realize you are unified with one another and live according to that. See, you don't have to unify the church. Jesus has already done that. Like, we have unity in the gospel. You don't have to bring unity to one another. What we do is we live out the unity that God has given to us and brought us into in Christ. But it is an amazing thing how often we, as Christians, continue to not, not create the unity. What we create is the disunity. We are the ones who inject the division into the church. And it seems like it is a consistent project for God's people to, to undo the unifying work of, that God has done in the gospel. 
so that we can then kind of create these divisions and teams and tribes and all that kind of stuff. And so, and so what I want to do is I want to, uh, this morning, uh, help you out in your project to divide the church, okay? We're going to talk about four ways to divide the church. Now, I wrestled with this because I don't want you to actually divide the church, okay? Just up, up top, which is going to be kind of like a, you've got to reverse everything, okay? Uh, I hope that's not too much work, but we're just going to, we're going to do a little like mental exercise this morning. Okay, so I'm going to give you four ways to divide the church. Don't do it, okay? Flip them around, do the other thing, okay? And here's, here's going to be a consistent theme that we're going to, we're going to uh, 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 see as we walk throughout. A consistent theme throughout the, the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3 is, he is exhorting um, the, the Corinthians in their failure. They're, they're kind of realizing this. They're, they're injecting division into the church. Uh, he, he's going to say, underneath that is you've got too low a view of God and the gospel, and you've got too high a view of self and others. Over and over and over again. Under, so he doesn't actually, and, and we'll get there in just a second, but I just want you to see his encouragements to the Corinthians. They're not, they're not doing a whole lot. He's not really addressing what they're doing. He's, underneath, he's addressing what's underneath what they're doing. He's addressing kind of the heart and the value system that's underneath their divisions in the church. And so he's saying the problem with what you value, with the problem with what you esteem, with what you love, with your view on things, is that your God is too small and your people are too big both yourself and others. And so again, as we go out, the corrective is going to be, we need to have a higher view of God and the gospel and a lower view of self and others. And if we can, if we can lean into that kind of gentle correction that he gives, we will actually have protection against these ways to divide the church. So let me, let me uh, give you four ways from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to divide the church. The first one is, I want to... Uh, uh, Again, not encourage you. That's not the right word. Uh, stall in immaturity, okay? Here's, here's the first one that we see here. Stall in spiritual immaturity. Paul has been correcting the Corinthian believers because of their division, and he's building on the argument that he made in the previous chapter. And last week, Tony uh, helped us to see that he is, he is uh, kind of making this contrast between spiritual people and unspiritual people, and that the dividing line between those who are truly spiritual and those who are unspiritual is not whether they believe in spiritual things, but there is a kind of true gospel spirituality that is really defined by, do you have the Spirit of God. Spiritual people have the Spirit of God. Unspiritual people do not have the, spiritual, uh, the, the Spirit of God. And so the Corinthians, if they are truly Christians, they should have the Spirit of God, and they should therefore receive Paul's message, <clears throat> which is the message of the cross of Christ. If you've got the Spirit, you should receive Paul's message. Paul preaches Christ. In Christ, we ought to receive and, and be unified. Paul preached the supremacy of Jesus above all. And that should have put all of their divisive loyalty to Paul and to Apollos and to Cephas and to others. It should have put it all to rest. He preaches Christ. And he wants the Corinthians to find their identity and their unity and their meaning and their worth in Christ. And he says, if you are spiritual people, that should have resonated with you. But where he's driving at, the whole discussion last week of spiritual people versus unspiritual people is he's getting here to chapter 3, verse 1, and he says... Uh, uh, look what he says there, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but instead as people of the flesh, 
as infants in Christ. He says that the problem with the Corinthians is that they are stuck in a kind of spiritual infancy, an immaturity. Now, what I don't think that he is telling them is that they are not actually spiritual, that they're not Christians, but only that he can't treat them as spiritual. He can't treat them as he wants to be able to treat Christians because they are stalled in their development. And they are still acting out of kind of their old nature rather than their new nature that they have in Christ. You can see it a couple times in verse 1 and in verse 3. He uses this language as being people of the flesh. In verse 3, he says that they are acting in a human way. That would be in contrast to a spiritual way. And then in, chapter, in verse 4, again, he says that they are being merely human. What Paul is, is reminding the Corinthians of is that just because they now have the Spirit of God does not mean that their old man and their old nature is done away with. But rather, it is still there, present, and it is ready to kind of take over their actions and their interactions with one another at any time. And he's saying the, 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 the divisions that you're experiencing, they are the fruit of the fact that you are so immature in the gospel that the old man is kind of rearing up and it is controlling you. You ever met somebody who uh, claims where they've come from as an excuse for their current actions? I know some of you, I'm not going to look at you and point it out, but I know that there are some of you people who, they're like, why do you do that weird thing? And it's like, well, where, where I'm from, you know, back in the South, they do it like this. And it's like, you haven't lived in your hometown for like 40 years. Like, when are you going to like grow out of this? You can't keep claiming like this heritage that you've got as an excuse for your current action. Something like that is going on spiritually. The, the Corinthians... We're, we're acting not out of this new nature that they have. They're instead acting out of this old way of being that they've actually been rescued out of. And he says that is, is really just because of your immaturity in the gospel. Notice the, the language that he uses here. He, he gives us this analogy of the kind of food that they, they ought to be uh, ingesting here. He says they're stuck in the, the basics of the faith. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And you are not, and you are still, sorry, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. He says, you're operating still out of this old nature, and it's preventing you from going deeper into the gospel. And I want to clarify there, I don't think the contrast between milk and meat, where milk is kind of the, the pure milk of the gospel, and then meat is like, let's leave the gospel behind and move on to the more advanced stuff. That's not the right way to read this. Notice that the, the contrast, the encouragement, the challenge that he's giving to the Corinthians is, you're not growing into maturity. You're not growing into the harder stuff. You're not growing deeper into the knowledge of the things of God. You're not, he's not saying you should move past them. He's saying you should de grow deeper into it. But the Corinthians are stuck in the basics. And because they're stuck in the basics, they're immature. Friends, we, we need to just let that be a warning to us. Are you stuck in the basics of the gospel? Is your knowledge of the things of God stuck at the basics, the, the general contours of it? I do not want you to move past the gospel. 
What I think 1 Corinthians is telling you, there are depths to the riches and the knowledge of God. Are you plumbing them? Are you increasing in your faith? Are you increasing in your knowledge of God? Is your knowledge of not just what the gospel is, but how it works and how it influences every aspect of your life, is that manifesting in your life? Or are you just kind of coasting on milk? What Paul is saying here is, if you live that way, you are in spiritually dangerous territory. Because maturity is not coming, and when maturity doesn't come, what manifests is divisiveness and division among us. They're stuck in the basics of the faith, and they're stuck in sinful ways of relating to one another because of it. He says in verse 3, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He says, you're not, you're not growing in your, 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 what you're consuming in the gospel. It's not maturing and developing. And then also the way you actually interact with one another is not maturing. It is not growing. Instead, it still reflects the old man. Once again, IDC, I can ask the question, how do we relate to one another? Are we marked by the image and the character of Christ, or are we marked by jealousy and strife among us? Notice that when we do that, we are behaving not in a way that is born out of the gospel, but is ultimately born out of our flesh, the old man, a merely human way of interacting with one another. So Paul is basically saying, because of these things, because you're, you're stuck in the basics of the faith and you're stuck in relating to one another in this kind of old man way, he says, I know that you're stuck in a kind of immaturity. You're, mild, you're mired in a kind of mediocrity in your love for the Lord and in your, your uh, growth and development in the Lord. You are not operating from the spirit, but from the flesh. And so it makes sense that when it comes to your divisions or your, your posture towards your leaders, you are going to act in towards them out of that immaturity. Pay attention to that again because I want you to know, when you operate towards your leaders, especially by being divisive about them, if you are, if you are creating divisions that way, that is not out of maturity but immaturity. That's what he says in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He says, don't, don't claim your tribe in the church and then claim to be the spiritual people. If you're going to claim your tribe in the church, that is only born out of immaturity, not maturity, out of unspirituality, if you will, not true spirituality. So that's the first way to, to divide the church, is to, to stall in a kind of spiritual immaturity. The second one I want you to see in this passage uh, is to misunderstand the role of your leaders. If you want to divide the church, misunderstand the role of your leaders. For three chapters, really, Paul has been setting up and working in this discussion of the Corinthians and how they're approaching and viewing their leaders, but he hasn't really provided the correction quite yet. So that's what he gets to here. He says a great way to divide the church is to, is to expect and ask from your leaders something that they are not actually supposed to provide. They wanted these leaders to, to lead factions, to rise to the top, to build the coalition. These, these Corinthians were identifying their group of people and saying, I'm, I've got my guy. I've got a Paul. I've got a, a Apollos over here. He's my guy. And what I need, I need Paul to, to kind of lead the charge. I need Apollos to kind of set the tone or to be the, the big preacher or something like that. 
And so they are, they are asking of their leaders to kind of elevate themselves and, and like, like make, the, make it happen, Peter. Make it happen, Paul. Make it happen, Apollos. You're the, you're the one who's really going to get the stuff done. They were asking these leaders to do something that Paul is saying, you have completely misunderstand their role in the kingdom. You have re- misplaced them in what their job is in the kingdom of God. And we do this all the time. Let's not, we can, this one maybe more than any others, I would say, do some self-reflection. Okay? Because we want heroes. We desperately want heroes. And we desperately want leaders who are going to make it happen. Who are going to save the day who are going to lead the charge. And if we can find the right guy, if we can back the right horse, man, it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to be on the right team. It feels good to like pick the next winner. And we are so inclined to find in our, our preferred leadership something that we were never meant to find. We want rock stars. We want influencers. We want trendsetters, and we want people who will provide the results. And Paul is saying, be real careful, because you're asking of these leaders stuff that they absolutely cannot provide. And so the, really, the bulk of this passage is he's providing this corrective and says, here's the right way you ought to view your leaders. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? You're making them heroes. You're making them your champions. These are servants through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned to each. You know, what the, you know what Paul's primary identity is in relation to the church? It's not leader. It's not CEO. It's not trailblazer. It's servant. And I love the, the, the language even he used. Like, he doesn't even emphasize like, servants that led you to believe. Servants that persuaded you to have faith in Christ. Like he takes away the, the actor-ness of Paul and Apollos, and he doesn't say these are the guys who did it. He says God did it through them. He's trying to reframe their, their sense of kind of effectiveness here. He says these are not the leaders. These are the servants. So leaders in God's church are not, not supposed to be the, 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 the tribe leaders, but rather they are, they are the servants of the church. And second, they're, they're unable, and I want to use this word very intentionally, leaders are actually unable to bring about the kingdom growth we want to see. This is not a, uh, what I'm not saying is leaders are not very good at bringing about spiritual results. I'm telling you, leaders can't bring about spiritual results. And we have to believe that. This, going back to what I said earlier, this idea of we have too low a view of God and the gospel and too high a view of self and others, this is a great example of it right here. If we look at, church, at a church that's growing, and I know you guys are not necessarily in <clears throat> church leadership conversations all the time, but it is astounding how much we attri- attribute the effectiveness of growth and kingdom growth in whatever way it looks like to whoever's preaching, to whoever's leading, to whatever system it is, 
to whatever ecclesiology you got, to whatever way of preaching you've got, all this kind of stuff. And we just need to recognize that when we do that, we come dangerously close to giving a power to mere people that, friends, they don't have. They can't do it. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul's going to talk about um, conversion in this deeply spiritual way. He says, what happens when you came to faith in Christ is God reached into your heart and he lifted a veil so that you could behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, I can't do that. I cannot reach into your heart and to be like, oh, there's a veil here. Let me lift it so that you can perceive who God is in Christ. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. Your leaders are unable to produce real, lasting spiritual fruit. That's why he says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but where did the work get done? Where did the, the effectiveness happen? God's the one who gave the growth. It reminds us of the, the, uh, the parables that Jesus would tell about the kingdom, of how the farmer kind of plants the seed and he waters it, and then what does the farmer do? He goes to bed. And then he wakes up, boom, fruit. Life, growth. We have too low a view of God and the gospel as the one who does the work. And we have too high a view of self and others, thinking they are the ones who do the work. And so he says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters, is verse 8, are one, and each one will receive wages according to his labor. But once again, we, we work, we labor, and I'm going to touch on that in just a second, but God is the one who does the work. This is humbling, and it's also encouraging. Just real quick aside here. It's humbling, obviously, because look, the spiritual fruit that you see in and around your life, I'm sorry, friend, you didn't do it. It's so humbling. You didn't do it. Don't get on your high horse. Don't puff yourself up. Don't boast about being a part of, of, uh, of some movement of God as though you did anything there. Don't try to take any credit. You might have planted, you might have watered, you might have like picked a weed around it or something like that, but you cannot do the work that actually matters. None of us can. But it's encouraging because the Lord gives the growth. He wants to give the growth. He desires to give the growth. He intends to give the growth. And he, he structured the whole thing in, in such a way that he gets the glory for what he has done in Christ, and we do not. And so when you've got the friend who you are sharing the gospel with and you just can't, you just can't break through, friend, you might not be doing anything wrong. Your, your work is to, to share, to preach, to, to evangelize, to welcome, to invite, and all that kind of thing, and then go to your knees and say, Lord, make it grow. There is something I, it's not that I'm just not good at doing. I can't do. I cannot change this person's heart. I remember having this experience. Uh, I think I might have said this before. I was in uh, Turkey one time for, for a summer, and I was sharing the gospel. Well, I was on this campus, and we met these friends who we had like a really broken English convert like relationship with, because I didn't know any Turkish, and this guy... These guys, obviously, uh, uh, they spoke a little bit, but not, not a ton. 
And, uh, but we were able to have this long, drawn-out conversation about the gospel one time. And I'll remember, I'll, I remember the moment where the glory and the gra- of the grace of the gospel clicked for them. The idea that God in Christ did for them what they, as, as fallen, broken sinners, could not do for themselves. And he did it all of his grace and love. They didn't have to do anything to earn his salvation. And I just remember the moment it clicked. You could see it in their eyes. Their eyes lit up. Their mouth was agape. And they were astounded by the grace of the gospel. And then they said, no, I don't want that. And I remember going back to my my dorm room, crushed and confronted with this reality right here. It was there. The gospel was there. They got it. And I just remember having to kind of be confronted with my own inability to do the work we came to do. We came to see people come to faith, and I can't make it happen. And so it drives us to our knees and says, Lord, you got to do it. you got to do it. And friend, be encouraged. The Lord wants to do it. He wants to bring the growth. So leaders, leaders are, are unable to bring about kingdom growth. Uh, a, a similar, similar point, but, but slightly uh, adjusted. He wants us to remember that leaders are not, uh, you'll allow me, the point. The church is. Keep in mind, leaders are not the point. The church is. Notice what he says in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field, God's building. He's, he's drawing a con- contrast here. We are workers for God. You are the thing God is working on. He says it's silly to, you know, if you ever had a project, let's say you were building a house, okay, or whatever, let's just say you're building a house, okay, and you wanted to go out to the, 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 the work site every day and admire the workers. That's not what you would do, is it? Because the thing that you're going for is what? It's the house. It should be kind of a silly thing to be, look at the craftsmanship day after day. Well, is the house getting built right? Doesn't matter. I just love the craftsmanship. I love the skill that's going on there. The thing I want to check out is, is the house being built correctly? Because the house is what matters. The field is what matters. Not the laborer in the field. Leaders are not the point. And it's a silly thing when we, we kind of inject our leaders into this place and pretend like they are the thing that, that matters. They are the thing that is the point. And he's trying to kind of shift their attention away from leaders and very intentionally towards not just themselves as individuals, not really just the lost. He's trying to change their attention to the church itself. He's saying you are God's building in verse 9. In verses 16 and 7, he's going to call them God's temple. He's drawing very intentional kind of connections between the church and the Old Testament temple of God. And he's saying what God is building in you, church, is his dwelling place. You are the thing that he's working on. You, people of God, are the thing that he is working to grow and to save and to mature. Don't get distracted or obsessed about the various leaders He says what God is concerned about is the church, the building, the temple. And so he says because the point is the building, the last thing I want you to see about leaders is that they are accountable to God for their work in that building. Verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
He says, if the, the main point, if the thing that matters is the church itself, he said, I did my work. I laid the foundation. And now what matters is, how are these leaders building on that foundation? Because they are not the point. The church is. And they will be accountable for how they build. So what does it look like to build faithfully? First, he says, for you to build faithfully, it has to build on the foundation of Christ. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. If, you, if your leaders are going to build faithfully, this is going to be an absolutely distinguishing marker. Are they building on the foundation of the gospel? If they're building on anything other than Christ, they're building on anything other than the message of the gospel, it is not God's work that they're doing. It's something else. And so what they're going to be accountable for, are they building on the foundation of the gospel? This is one of the reasons that at IDC we're just committed. We're never going to move beyond the gospel. I don't have like 10, you know, tips for life. I don't necessarily have like here's ways that you should raise your kids or anything like that. I don't have a way, here's how you can turn over a new leaf and all of a sudden be successful and rich or anything like that. What we have is we can hold out to you Christ. And if we try to build anything on any other foundation, popularity, strategy, anything like that, it's a different foundation. He says, if you're going to be faithful before God, it's got to be built on the foundation of Christ. So you've got to build it on the foundation of Christ. And then second, you've got to build it consistent with the foundation of Christ. It doesn't just matter where we build, it matters how we build. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Our accountability before God for the work that we do in his kingdom, it will be tested, it will be scanned, it will be assessed. Now, what he's not saying here is that this is kind of a salvation by works. You see that here in just a second. What he's saying is, in the kingdom of God, leaders are building on the foundation of the gospel. They're, they're building out the, the temple that is the church of God. And how they build matters. If they build uh, in ways that are inconsistent with the glory of the temple, it's going to get burned up. It's going to go away. It's going to be shown to be short, short-lived unimpressive, not lasting, not ultimately of the kingdom. But if they build in a way that is consistent with the foundation, it will withstand the testing that God will put on it. And so to the extent that we operate in ways that are consistent with the kingdom, that we build in ways that are consistent with the kingdom, with the, the resources that are the, the good and valuable resources consistent with the kingdom, uh, we will be rewarded. It says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. That's verse 14. And to the extent that we don't, we will see our work kind of shown for what it is, merely human, of ourselves. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is how we know. Paul's very careful to make sure he's not saying this is some kind, some kind of, you better work good or you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying you're going to be saved. You're safe. But your work might be all for nothing if it's not built on the foundation in a way that's consistent with the foundation. Right, you see, how are we doing? How are we building? Where are we building? 
What are you concerned to reproduce in Raleigh and among the nations? Our name, our fame, our success, our footprint? I think we better be careful. Those things might be off the foundation a little bit. They might be inconsistent with the foundation. But if we are building on the gospel, consistent with the gospel, we can trust that the Lord will see that, and it will stand. So that's two ways to divide the church, stall in in immaturity, misunderstand the role of your leaders. Really quickly, the last two that I want to give you here. First, if you want to divide the church, forget God's jealousy for his people. This goes back to low view of God. just, Just forget how jealous God is for his people. Have a small God if you want to divide the church. But if you remember how big God is, it makes it a really dangerous thing to go in and create division. That's exactly what he says here. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Like the Lord is not playing around. For God's temple is holy. It is precious to him. It is what he came for. This is the message of the gospel, friends. God came to save a people for himself. Like the message of the gospel is that God sent his son to die for the sins of the world so that he could rescue for, a, for himself a people of his own possession. And he says, if you want to go in and monkey with that, be careful. At your own risk. Because God is not playing around with his people. He is not playing around with his temple. He is, he is jealous for his temple. And the Corinthians, they had just forgotten this. They had forgotten their own identity as his people. Ironically, here's a way in which they actually probably had too low a view of themselves. They need to recognize you are the thing that God cares about. And he is jealous for it. He is zealous for it. He loves it and he is going to protect it. And they had forgotten that God's loving jealousy was directed at his people in a protective way. And so knowing that they, who they were as God's people, and knowing God's love for his people, it should have fueled for them a zeal for protecting God's people and staving off the divisions that were there. Instead of protecting God's people with reverential awe, they opened themselves up to split God's people over petty human earthly things. Which feeds in really into this last way to divide the church. It's to value human wisdom over God's wisdom. Verses 18 through 23, he revisits this contrast between wisdom and folly, which he first brings up in chapter 1. And once again, he wants to flip the whole category on its head. And he says, human wisdom is foolishness to God, and God's wisdom seems like foolishness to the world. And so it leads him to say a very surprising thing in verse 18. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. You don't often, the Bible doesn't often encourage you to be a fool. But here, here is one spot here. If you think you're wise in the eyes of the world, you should probably make yourself a fool so that by doing so you can actually become wise. If you want true wisdom, it's not going to look like the wisdom of this world. So when he's trying to kind of land the plane on on correcting their approach to their leaders and their divisions and stuff like that, it's, it's, he does not mince word. Verse 21, let no one boast in men. 
He's kind of he's going to go straight at the straight at the heart. Some follow Paul, some follow Paulus, some follow, Paulus, follow Cephas, some follow Christ. He says, "Stop it! You you are you are peddling in human wisdom by doing so. You are operating according to the wisdom of the world." The wisdom of the world says that's the way to go. Find yourself a teacher, find yourself a tribe, attach yourself to them, and find in them fame and glory and success and self-importance. That's what the world is telling us. Who are you with? But in the economy of God's kingdom, those things all come to nothing. And I love how he closes this chapter because he doesn't just say, stop boasting in these leaders. He actually says, replace it replace it. Flip it on its head. In chapter one, we had this, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Peter. It's in the beginning of this chapter two. I'm a, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. What he wants to do is he's saying, you're misunderstanding the whole system. You don't belong to Paul. Paul belongs to you. You don't belong to these leaders. These leaders are here to belong to you because you are in Christ. You are the thing that God cares about. They are servants of the church. He says, you have everything you need in Christ. Everything that you could possibly need, church, you have in Christ. We don't have to look to human leaders to help provide this stuff for us. We have it in Christ. The human leaders are given as servants to us. But he doesn't just stop with the leaders. He says, you want the world? In chapter 6, he's going to tell us, you're going to judge the world. You want life? Life is yours in Christ. You want death? You worried about death? Christ says defeated death for you. He just goes everything you could possibly think you need or are worried about or focused on, all of those things you're focusing on, you need to realize they all belong to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Church, we have everything we need in Christ. We do not need to obsess over leaders and create divisions about those things. They are distractions from the reality that we have Christ. And in him, we have everything that we need. I understand this might be a weird week for you to be here if you're uh, not a Christian. And it might be patently obvious to you. You look at the church maybe from the outside and say, man, the church is all, all kinds of divided I didn't need a sermon to tell me that the church is divided. I want you to know the Bible is aware of these divisions and has the answer. And the answer is not, let's look for better leaders. The answer is, let's look to Christ. And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to hold out to you, I don't necessarily have a better church for you to look at. What I have is a better Savior for you to look at. I don't have this picture of a perfect church who's figured all this thing out. The Bible knows that we're fallen, broken, we're messed up, but the Bible even directs our gaze off of ourselves and looks to Christ and tells us to look to Christ. And friend, I just want you to know we do not have ourselves for you as this example of everything is going perfectly. What we have to hold out to you is the Christ that has saved us. He is not divided. He is not immature. He does not have his priorities flipped upside down. He will never fail. And he is able to accomplish the work that we want to see happen. We would love to introduce you to him. And my good church, let's push back on the divisions that we are inclined to make. 
because we stall in our immaturity, because we, we obsess over our leaders in unhealthy ways, because we forget God's jealousy and his love for his people, and because we are inclined to give ourselves over to human wisdom rather than divine wisdom. And let's let all of those things direct our gaze to a God is, who is much bigger than we could ever imagine, a gospel that is much sweeter than we could ever imagine, and let it put us in our proper pr- place. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word for us this morning. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that even though we know that we are inclined towards divisiveness and division, and we know we have leaders who are good gifts from you, but also imperfect, God, all those things point us to what you've done for us in Jesus. And God, we just help, ask for your help in setting our gaze on what we have in Christ and let that kind of position us appropriately in the way that we relate to one another as your people, as your field, as your building, as your temple, that you would be glorified and honored in your church and that we would find our good in walking with and before you. In Jesus' name, amen.